Good morning. Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 3. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The word of the Lord. Uh, we're in a series in which we're looking at some of the most controversial topics in our culture. Things like sexuality and transgender identities and abortion and things like that. Uh, in the first week, we saw that we all bring different faith assumptions to these conversations. And we need to be aware of those. Last week... Uh, we saw that the Bible offers us a radically unique view of the body. That we are not just bodies only, nor are we eternal souls that are temporarily housed in a, in a temporary body. Instead, the Bible says that we are a body-soul unity, that we're embodied souls. Now that brings us to this week. In our culture, we never just have conversations about gender or sexuality or ethnicity or nationality or religion. We always talk about gender identity or sexual identity or national or religious or ethnic identity. Our culture is full of identity language, but what do we mean when we talk about that? We need to be clear about that because if we don't understand what identity is we can't really be clear about all these other conversations now here's the thing the bible never uses the word identity 
That's actually more of a modern word. And yet, the core question at the heart of identity is this. Who am I? And not just who am I in some abstract sense, but, um, but who am I in the story of this world? Identity, in many ways, is, is our need, our desire to make sense of our lives in light of the story we're in. So, for instance, uh, the Best Picture Oscar this year went to a film called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Daniel Kwan uh, is one of the directors. In his acceptance speech, I was amazed at something he said. He said this, One of the best things we can do is shelter each other from the chaos of this crazy world we live in. Thank you to the storytellers who did that for me. The world is changing rapidly and I fear that our stories are not keeping pace. It's a little scary knowing that movies move at the rate of years and the world on the internet moves at the rate of milliseconds. But I have great faith in our stories, he says. This was fascinating to me because Daniel Kwan is saying, on the one hand, we live in a crazy chaotic world. Things are moving so fast. Don't you feel that? And yet, he's saying that um, stories can help us make sense of our lives in the midst of this crazy world. Identity speaks to our need to make sense of our lives in the light of the story that we're in. And the Bible speaks to that on every single page, especially this passage that we just read. So let's take a look this morning and learn three things about identity, or at least a biblical view of identity. This is gonna show us the quest for identity, the dilemma of identity, and the fulfillment of identity. The quest, the dilemma, and the fulfillment of identity. Okay? First, the quest for identity. Um, let's start with some basic categories. Uh, there are two basic components to identity, stability and significance. So first, stability uh, it means that um, there is a core self, a, a, a self that is the same. It's fixed and unchanging throughout all the different events in our life. The word identity actually comes from the Latin word idem, which means the same. In other words, this means that there's a core you, the same you that was born, that was raised in a home and went to certain schools and has had different experiences, the same you that wears many different hats and plays different roles in the world, whether it's son or daughter or sibling or uh, spouse or parent or friend or neighbor or coworker or whatever your occupation is. A sense of stability means that there is a, a self that is stable. It's the same self throughout all the different events of your life. Secondly, um, identity means a sense of significance. It's where we get a sense of worth, value, and dignity for our lives. When psychologists and sociologists talk about identity, uh, they often refer to the different social realities that describe our lives. Things like ethnicity, gender, sexuality, occupation, religion, and many other things. These things describe our social realities. But they also talk about how we get a sense of value from these things. We get a sense of significance from these things. Now, throughout history, traditional societies have typically said that the way you get an identity is by embracing the role that is handed to you by society. 
And that role uh, is based on certain essential design that you have, an essential design that's fixed and unchanging and that is different from the fixed, unchanging uh, design of other groups of people. So look at this passage. Paul talks about this. He's talking to the church, about the church, that is, and he says here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Paul is naming the reality that in the ancient world, um, people were seen as having an essential design that was fixed and unchanging, that was different from other people's essential design. It might be your biological sex. It might be your ethnicity, Greek or Jew. It might be your social status, slave or free. But everyone had an essential design, and um, different groups had a different essential design. And as a result, the groups with more power would marginalize and oppress the groups with less power. Romans oppressing Jews. Free people oppressing slaves. Men oppressing women. Um, in our modern day, uh, we call this traditional way of getting an identity essentialism. Essentialism is the idea that everyone has an essential design that, that's fixed and unchanging, and it's different from um, other groups' essential design. Um, essentialism um, tells us, on the one hand, this is actually... Um, one thing that's good about this is it's really good at giving us a sense of stability, the stability that we all long for, because it says, hey, there are things in your life you can look at and you, you can say, this is who I am. This doesn't change. Um, I can rely on this. But on the other hand, essentialism is not very good at giving us the significance we long for, because um, one group might have the power, but another group doesn't have the power. And so the group with the power might have a, a good sense of significance, but it's actually a hollow, empty significance because it's based on oppressing others. And the oppressed group doesn't have any significance in the culture. Paul is naming that reality in this passage. We see the same reality when we look at history, things like colonialism or slavery or the Nazis. So on the one hand, essentialism is saying we all have this fixed, unchanging design and different groups have different essential designs. Now, as a result of this, and especially the oppression that can result from this, um, our modern society has um, come up with a different way of getting an identity that um, is often called constructionism. Uh, constructionism says that... Um, Instead of um, seeing all these things in our lives as being part of some essential design in our lives, it says those things are actually social constructions. Things like race or class. Over the last 50 years, we've added other things like gender. Constructionism says that the way we get an identity is we construct our own identity because there is no design. All we have is desire. We were actually talking about this last week. Um, the most powerful narrative in our culture is called the authenticity narrative. The authenticity narrative says that your deepest desires are your true authentic self. And our primary duty in this world is to construct and express our authentic self to the world around us. And here's the thing. This is not just a liberal progressive thing. This is everybody in Western society. Even um, 
People who might subscribe to a more essentialist view of gender and sexuality are still deeply impacted by this narrative. It's everywhere. I mean, think about the slogans and sayings that fill our culture. Things like, everybody should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. Or, be true to yourself. Or, just follow your heart. Or, my personal favorite, you do you. Every single one of us is impacted by this narrative of identity construction. So, for instance, Tara Isabella Burton is a writer who's an expert on uh, American spirituality and culture. She just came out with a brand new book called Self Made. At the beginning of this book, she says this, the idea that we are self-makers is encoded into almost every aspect of Western contemporary life. At the core of self-creation lies one vital assumption. What is it? That who we are at our most fundamental level is who we most want to be. Our desires, our longings are the truest and most honest parts of ourselves. So, what do we say about constructionism? Well, on the one hand, constructionism is really good at giving us that significance we long for because it affirms our individual desires. It also invests us with the personal dignity and responsibility of becoming the people that we are meant to be. It's kind of like that famous Mary Oliver poem where she says, Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? The constructionism says that, that we are all responsible for becoming the people we're meant to be. But on the other hand, constructionism is not very good at giving us the stability we long for. Because if our identity is based on social constructions or on desires, then when society changes or when our desires change, then what happens to our identity? Do you see the tension here? Friends, we're all on a quest for identity. But does this mean that we have to pick between the two things? Do, do you see the tension between the traditional essentialist approach to identity and the modern constructionist approach to identity? What do we do? Do we pick one or the other? Find something else? Are we just out of luck? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just looked at the quest for identity, but secondly, we need to take a look at the dilemma of identity. One of the amazing things about this passage is that um, it shows us that this idea that we have to pick between essentialism or constructionism is actually a false dichotomy. Let me tell, show you why. Um, remember, essentialism says that our identity is rooted in an essential design that never changes. The problem with essentialism is not that it's looking for an essential design. The problem is it's not looking deep enough. Look at how Paul puts this in this passage. Um, Paul says, you have put off the old self. He's talking to Christians, by the way, but the goal is the same for every human being. He says, you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. When Paul talks about being renewed in the image of God, he's tapping into Genesis 1. Now, if you were with us, we talked about this last week. Genesis 1 says that the most fundamental reality about every single human being is that we are all created in the image of God. Every single human being. It's the essential, the ultimate essential design. And yet, 
that means that regardless of all the other things that might differentiate us as human beings, like race or gender or sexuality or nationality or ethnicity or whatever it might be, all of those things, um, they, they, um, they might describe us, but they don't define us. And as a result, Paul is saying those things might differentiate us, but the one thing that we all have in common is that we are all created in the image of God. It's the ultimate essential design. And yet, here's the thing. Um, Some of us might say, well, Pastor Eric, does that mean you're telling us that the Bible embraces essentialism and rejects constructionism? Not so fast. Remember, constructionism says that our identity... Um, is something we construct ourselves on the basis of our own inner desires. The problem with um, constructionism is not that it's pursuing or emphasizing desire. The problem is that it doesn't emphasize desire enough. So for instance, take a look with me. Paul says later in the passage, uh, again, he's talking to Christians, but he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, on the surface, it would look really easy to say, aha, see, Paul is telling us here to put, put to death desire. It's easy to think that, that Christianity is all about saying no to desire. But that's not actually what Paul is saying. It's easy to think that, though. Whenever I, um, I read this, I always think about that movie, Chocolat, which is all about a free-spirited woman uh, played by Juliette Binoche, uh, who brings chocolate to a French village where uh, everybody is very religious and very uptight, especially the mayor. They have all these religious rules and regulations. And the movie takes place during Lent, which means there are even more rules and regulations. There's a scene um, in which the mayor is sitting at his desk and, and there's a plate on his desk with a croissant and this luscious little dish of jam. And you can see he, he's working and he's, he's trying not to look at it, trying to not, um, just, you know, he, but he keeps glancing over at it nervously. And you can just see the, just the tortured longing on his face as though he's saying, I, I want it. I want it so bad, but no, I can't. I must say no to this desire because eating this jam would be a sin. It is so easy to think that Christianity is all about saying no to desires. But that is not what Paul is saying here. What does he actually say? He doesn't say put to death desire. He says put to death evil desire. The problem is not desire. The problem is evil desire. What does that mean? Well, Notice at the very end of the verse, he talks about idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when we take a good thing, a really good thing, and we twist it into an ultimate thing. It's when, um, it's when our desires get out of order. So for instance, um, I love cookies. But if I love cookies more than I love my wife, that doesn't mean that, that cookies are bad. Or that my desire for cookies is evil. It means that my desires are out of order. Or likewise, I love my wife. She has changed my life. But if I love my wife more than I love God, that doesn't mean that marriage is bad or that my desire for my wife is is evil. It's not. It means that my desires are out of order. Paul is simply saying that we need to put our desires back in order. 
the problem that, that it's not about loving or desiring the things of this world less, but about desiring God more. So notice um, how Paul puts this positively in this passage. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek. Some translations translate this, set your hearts on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is saying, you absolutely should seek and pursue um, the deepest desires of your heart. But if you really knew your heart, you would realize that all of the things we desire most deeply in this world are simply pointing us to an even deeper desire we have for God. Friends, do you see where this brings us? On the one hand, essentialism is right to, to look for an essential design that can give us the stability that we need. The problem is it's not looking deep enough. When we look to things like race or gender or sexuality or um, nationality or even things like politics or religion, those things describe us, but they can never define us. And if we let those things define us, that's what leads to all the division and depression in this world. And likewise, constructionism is right to pursue desire as a way of getting the significance that we need. The problem is that it doesn't pursue desire far enough. There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote where he says this, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Friends, do you see where this leaves us? Do you see the dilemma here uh, between essentialism and constructionism? On the one hand, essentialism um, can't give us a design that's deep enough to define us. And on the other hand, constructionism can't pursue desire far enough to define us. But the gospel gives us both. We talked about Christopher Watkin last week. He's a Christian philosopher who points out that the Bible regularly subverts all of our false dichotomies. He calls this diagonalization, which I know is, what does that mean? Here's how he defines it. Christopher Watkin says that given a choice between two camps or positions in our culture, the Bible frequently settles for neither and presents us with something richer than both. This move of cutting across or rearranging false cultural dichotomies I call diagonalization. So regarding this conversation about identity, the Bible says that instead of forcing us to make a choice between an essentialism that ignores our desires or a constructionism and a desire that denies that we have any design, instead of making a dichotomy between these two things, the Bible diagonalizes them and says that we are both designed by God and are created with a desire for God. Do you see that? In other words, we could say it like this. We are designed desirers. That is our ultimate identity. Designed desirers. And here's the question that this leads us to. What do we do with all of this? What does it mean to live out our identity, to live out this identity of designed desires in the world that we're living in, in the story that we're living in? Well, that leads us to our next point. Uh, we've seen the quest for identity. We just saw the dilemma of identity. But lastly, this passage shows us the fulfillment 
of identity. Remember um, that statement by Daniel Kwan at the beginning? He said, we live in a crazy, chaotic world. This world is moving so fast, and most of the time, this world just feels completely out of control, doesn't it? Do you ever feel that? Um, it, that feels like the story of the world that we're living in. And remember, identity is our quest to make sense of our lives in light of the story we're in. But what is the controlling story of our life? For instance, last week we were talking about trauma and how trauma literally hardwires a story, a controlling story, into our bodies. The story might be, you're not good, or you're not loved, or you're not safe. But whatever the story is, trauma hardwires that controlling story into our lives, and now we're interpreting that, our lives in light of that controlling story. But here's the thing, you know, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then some of those stories might actually be true. We may not be loved cosmically. We may not be perfectly safe in this universe. And yet, most of us assume that trauma is telling us a lie and that we need to interpret our lives in the light of a bigger, truer story. Friends, the gospel gives us the biggest, truest story of all. Look at how Paul puts this. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now again, remember he's talking about our desire for God here. But it would still be easy to look at this and think that Paul is saying, look, don't desire the world, despise the world, and set your deepest desires on heaven. It would be easy to think that's what Paul is saying, but he's not. He is not saying despise the world. He's saying don't let an out-of-control world become your controlling story. Look again at this verse. Notice he says, you've been raised with Christ, therefore seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The focus here is not so much on heaven as it is on Jesus, the one who rules from heaven. Jesus, the one who is seated at the right hand of God. Friends, that's the focus here. And in the Bible, um, to be seated at the right hand of someone is an image for authority and power and control. Who's sitting there, Paul says? Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. Friends, instead of letting an out-of-control world control the way you see God, let the resurrected Jesus control the way you see an out-of-control world. Said even more simply, don't let the world control the way you see God. Let God, the story of God and the resurrected Jesus, let that story control the way you see the world. Because the gospel is giving us the ultimate story. It's the story of Jesus. A story that begins with Jesus. A story that continues with Jesus. And a story that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Because the gospel tells us that we were created in God's image according to God's design. And the beautiful thing about this is we don't have to wonder what that design looks like. We uh, had part of Colossians 1 read this morning. In Colossians 1 it says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, came to earth, took on a human body, and has now revealed to us not only who God really is, but who we really are supposed to be. If you want to know what your real essential design is supposed to be, look at Jesus. The problem is 
we rebelled against our essential design. Because instead of setting our deepest desires on God, we set our deepest desires on the things of this world. We turned them into idols. And whenever we look at those things, whatever they might be, whether it's um, our work or career or achievements or romance or sex or marriage or children or uh, approval or comfort or control or power or security, whatever it might be, we look at those things and we say, my life. We say, career is life. Sex is life. Football is life, as Danny Rojas said. But whatever it might be, we look at all the created things of this world and we say, my life. And whenever we do that, not only do we crush those things because they can never live up to our expectations, we crush ourselves. We distort and twist the image of God in ourselves. Why? Because our deepest desires were meant for God. Look at how Colossians 1 puts this. It goes on to say that for by him, that's Jesus, for by Jesus, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying that we were created for Jesus, that, that our deepest desires should be for him, but they're not. And as a result, we're not finding the stability we seek. We're not finding the significance that we long for. Our identities are fractured, and our world still feels radically out of control. How does that change? Notice how Paul puts it in this passage. He says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is saying that when you become a Christian, now, instead of looking at all the things of this world and saying, my life, now you look at Jesus and you say, my life. Jesus becomes our life. And it's a way of dying to the old controlling story and coming alive to the bigger, truer story of the gospel. Friends, that's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's giving us this new story. So here's the thing. What happens when we do that? Notice how Paul puts this uh, in this passage. He says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says our life is now hidden with Christ. What does that mean? Well, at one level, this means that you're safe. That who you are, your deepest identity is safe. You're hidden with Christ in God. Friends, there's the stability we're looking for. But notice also, there's a contrast here between what's hidden and something that's visible. Notice Paul says, our life is hidden with Christ in God, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear visibly with Jesus in glory. Paul is saying that, yes, who we are, our ultimate identity is not yet fully revealed. It's hidden right now, but there is a day coming when it will be revealed in glory. We're headed for glory There's a day that is coming when who you are, your ultimate identity, will appear and will shine in all the blazing, radiant, glorious, beautiful glory of Jesus. That's who we are. That's where we're headed for. And there is the significance that we're all looking for. Friends, do you see what all of this does for us? Essentialism says that you're defined by your design. 
Constructionism says that we're defined by our pursuit of desire. But the gospel says you're defined by both your design by God and your desire for God. That all of that is yours now and now you have the stability you're seeking and now you have the significance that you're seeking. And the reason it can be ours is because on the cross, Jesus looked at you and said, my life. And make no mistake, Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. And yet, Jesus came to earth, took a human body. He entered into an out-of-control world and gave up control over his own body because there is nothing more out of control than having your hands and your feet nailed to a cross. Do you, are you looking for stability in your identity this morning? Look at Jesus nailed to the cross. Your ultimate identity, the, the fixedness, the stability of your identity does not depend on who you are or what you do or what you fail to do. It depends on Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Your identity is fixed because Jesus was fixed on the cross for you. And are you looking for significance this morning? Oh my goodness. Don't you see that there is no greater significance than the reality that the God of the universe loves you so much that he would come and die on a cross for you. Friends, don't you see essentialism says that you're defined by your design. Constructionism says that we're defined by our desires, but the gospel says you're defined by both. You're designed by God with a desire for God. And even more than that, the cross of Jesus Christ says that you are defined by God's desire for you. That we are not only designed desirers, we are desired desirers. That's who you are. That is your identity. And what, what would it look like for us to live out that identity in light of the truer, bigger story of the gospel? Well, we're going to spend the rest of this series following the implications of all of this as we begin to enter more deeply into these specific conversations. But this morning, here's my big encouragement for all of us, whether you've been following Jesus for decades or whether you're just beginning to explore faith or whether you're totally skeptical about Christianity. But my big encouragement is this. Spend time gazing at Jesus. That's the big thing Paul is telling us to do here. That is the most identity-shaping thing you can do. It's all about seek Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. Set your gaze on Jesus. Set your heart and your mind and your whole being on Jesus. Spend time gazing at Jesus. And if you wonder, well, how do I do that? What do I do? Here's the thing. <laughs> you already know how to do this because you're all, already spending all kinds of time gazing on something. And whatever it is, it's telling you a story, and that story is already shaping your life, and you are interpreting your life in light of that story that's already shaping you. When you the more time you spend gazing at Jesus, reading and meditating on the Gospels, or thinking about Jesus, or talking about Jesus with other people, the more that story gets into your life, the more it shapes you in the image of God, designed by God, desiring for God, and defined by his desire for you. And, and the more you do that, the more it shapes your life, the more it pulls you out of all the solipsistic self-absorption of this world and transforms you more and more so that you become a vessel of the essence of Jesus to the world around you. It's almost like you become a secret agent for the beauty of Jesus in this world. 
Friends, I, you know, let me finish like this. I had the good fortune of, uh, last month of being in New York for a few days. And while we were there, we were able to go to the Met. And they, they had a, a Van Gogh exhibit going on. Uh, apparently, Van Gogh spent a season of his life in Provence, in France. And all he did while he was there, I think it was like a couple of years, is he was painting cypress trees. Here's a picture of one. I wish you could see it better. Um, they're amazing. It's just a bunch of paintings of cypress trees. Van Gogh, he had this incredible ability to capture the essence of these trees and then communicate and express the essence, the beauty, the essential design of these cypress trees to the world around him. But how did he do that? One of the things I loved about the exhibit was that they had um, quotes from letters that Van Gogh wrote um, on display at the exhibit. And in one of the letters, I think it was to his brother Theo, he said this, to find the real character of things here, you have to look at them and paint them for a very long time. How did Van Gogh take these cypress trees and, and communicate the beauty and the essence of these things to the world around them? It was by looking at them for a really long time, by gazing on the beauty of these things, bringing the beauty of them more and more into his life. And the more that came into his life, the more he became a vessel for the beauty of those trees to the world around him. Friends, if a cypress tree could do something like that in and through Van Gogh, what could the tree of the cross do in and through you? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that you created us with a beautiful design in your image. And we, Lord, we fall in wonder this morning at the reality that not only did you create us in your image, in your design, that you created us, oh Lord, with hearts full of desire, God. And you, and you populated this world with all kinds of wonderful, amazing, beautiful things that are good. Your word says they are very, very good. And yet, Father, we confess that we have um, set our desire for these things over and above our desire for you. Lord, we've taken the things that you created to be pointers to you and made them the thing itself. Lord, we repent of that. We, we confess our rebellion against you. And yet we cry even more today. Help us to put to death all the distorted desires in our life and to reorder our desires on you. Lord, help us to do that through Jesus, the one who entered into this crazy, out-of-control world and, and went to death on a cross, was fixed to the cross so that our identities can be fixed in you. Lord, help us to embrace our identity as designed desirers, as desired desirers, and to live out and interpret that identity into the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.